Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Mass Effect Lorecast, the podcast where we explore the vast universe of lore behind the Mass Effect games. We'll talk about all the details you may have missed, ask the hard questions, and more. Hey friends, this is your host, Tom or Robots, and due to the magic of technology, um, <laughs> Sam and I are recording this at separate times. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I've been fighting a cold and then also uh, had adjusted my migraine medicine, so I've been um, having some, some rough evenings lately and wasn't able to do the show live this week, but Sam is a trooper and was able to stream his portion of it live. So uh, he will be chiming in in just a little bit, going over the lore section, and then I will be back in the middle of the show. And I hope you guys enjoy this episode, even though I wasn't able to be there to chime in and uh, enjoy Sam's um, lore lore lesson, I guess we call it, this week. Uh, but I should be back next week, and I look forward to seeing you guys during the live stream as usual. So I hope you guys enjoy it, and I will be back in the middle of the show. All right. See you in a bit. Okay. Well, welcome and Keila Salai, Spectres. Uh, this is week number 18 of the Mass Effect Lorecast. Who are we discussing today? This week, we are talking about a nomadic race who are treated like second-class citizens by the Citadel Council and pretty much the rest of the Mass Effect universe. They are a fan favorite, and if you're going to hang out with one of them, you might want to be sure to bring some antibiotics. If you've guessed it already, that's right, we are talking about the Quarians. Now, we've mentioned them in an episode before, right? If, if you've been listening, then you probably heard us before say uh, the Quarians and some of their culture during the Geth War episode, or what the Geth might refer to as the Morning War. But that really only covered one aspect of the Quarians. So the original plan was to go straight to the Vorcha and the Yog after the last patron chat episode. And, you know, when Tom and I, uh, when we spoke about it, we agreed, yeah, the Quarians need their own episode. So we're going back a little bit. We're going to give the Quarians their own episode. And that being said, why don't we just dive right into it? So, what has become a tradition now in the race episodes is I have a motto for every race. And I think the best idiomatic expression for the Koreans is probably, there's no place like home. Obvious reasons for huge fans of the game series, but we will get into that a little bit later. Um, let's dive into the, the biology first. The Koreans are a bipedal race big surprise there. We've talked in previous episodes about why some of the Koreans uh, or why uh, some of the races of Mass Effect proliferated in bipedal, uh, but 
or bipedalism, but that much is is evident. If you're interested about the origins of that, I'd, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the Protheans episode. I believe that's where we really discuss it the most, uh, if not that one, the next one. But the long and short of it is that um, the there are two con- competing schools of thought. One, Prothean interventionism. Two, that uh, bipedalism is somehow beneficial to evolution and therefore it proliferated. But anyway, about the Corians, their legs are bowed backwards. So that's kind of why I bring up the bipedalism. Their legs are bowed backwards and their feet have three toes. And their hands also have three digits as well. So this is, you know, very shocking when you look at them because they look like humans other than that. They have a similar height. They have a humanoid body, largely. Uh, They're slightly more slender than humans, sure, but they have very similar facial structures and very similar hair. They are presented as having males and females in their race as well, uh, much like humans. Not like a sorry, though. But there are a couple of key differences. They are dextroprotein-based species, meaning that their DNA spirals go the other way. Human beings go the other way from from Turians and Corians, but Turians and Corians, effectively, this means that they can only eat certain foods. And for the Corians, they can only eat flavored nutrient paste that's issued to them on their pilgrimages, which we'll discuss later, or Turian food. Uh, But they might not like the Turian food because Corians are typically vegans, which is a sustainability issue. The Corians basically found that raising livestock on on a ship is not easy it takes a lot of resources so veganism became necessary now it, what happens then if a korean eats a human eats human or a sorry food or even krogan food well likely an allergic reaction but the severity of which is probably differing in a lot of different ways um And, of course, uh, you might have noticed that Corian eyes look like they're glowing. That might be because they can see into the ultraviolet spectrum, which is augmented by their suit's heads-up display interfaces. Now, I'm happy that we're to this point because the suits, uh, that's really how we know the Corians, right? The heads-up displays, the masks, the tubes behind their head, that's that's all we can see, right? Um... And it is what distinguishes them. But the suits are there because they have a weak immune system. And naturally so. It wasn't just because they were kicked off of their home world, Rannoch. But Rannoch didn't have many pathogenic microbes. Or in other words, they didn't have many things that would make you get sick. And the ones that they did have, they had somewhat of a symbiotic relationship with the Quarians. It's interesting to note that the Protheans, namely Javik... Uh, say that the Corians are naturally emotional beings probably because of their symbiotic relationship with all other beings on Rannoch. Um, so interesting to note there. Uh, but as for their immune systems, well, they aren't well prepared for living in other worlds. And that's because of the microbes, like I said, most other microbes in other worlds are harmful to them. So when they become kicked off of their home world of Rannoch, they atrophy even further. Their immune systems get even worse. And it's from centuries of having lived in sterile environments aboard the migrant fleet. So we talked about this last time, why they were forced onto the fleet. 
with the fallout of the Geth War, the Morning War, however you put it. And yet, you know, we, we don't need to go over that again, but it is completely relevant to the Koreans' ongoing need for constant medical attention, right? This is intrinsically relevant to it. Even with the numerous vaccinations and boosters and, and, and any kind of medical care you could think of, they still invented the ability to sequester torn or punctured areas of their suits. So let's say that a Korean gets shot in combat and now there's a hole in the Korean's shoulder of their suit. Well, that could very well lead to severe infection for the Korean if they're not careful. So they have mass effect fields and mechanical methods of closing off one area of their suit so that, um, so that uh, uh, an infection would not be able to spread damage would be contained basically so this also means that they never almost never take off their suits for example anyone who has romanced tally by the way will will uh know where i'm going with this but the only time a quarian takes off their suit is either to reproduce reproduce rather or give birth and even doing so poses many risks for giving birth there are dedicated sections of Korean ships that are specifically sterilized. But like I said, even so, there are risks. That's how fragile the Korean immune system is. Now, when it comes to intimacy, Koreans aren't big on acts of physical affection because they really can't be. Uh, so the most intimate thing that a Korean can do is link their Enviro suit with another. Um, now, it's just my take. This isn't the official lore but it's just my take that Koreans have become masters of engineering partly out of necessity because it takes a master of engineering to make a suit that would allow you to survive in so many different environments when your immune system is as fragile as porcelain that that takes quite the engineer uh, and to do so and repair the suits with field repairs constantly because you have to think the migrant fleet is a field home. It's not a home world. It has no resources intrinsic to it. It is, everything is a field repair. So, you know, for the engineers in the audience, uh, they're probably marveling at the Koreans' clout, um, and probably rightfully so. Um, but when I say that you should bring antibiotics with you to hang out with a Korean, there's a reason. And this is the exact reason, or the reproduction, or, or, or uh, getting it on with Koreans, is what Morden mentions to us in Mass Effect 2, if you are romancing Tally. And Morden mentions its necessity while giving Shepard the sex talk, uh, an infamous talk, but it shows that, that Morden cares, which is nice. That being said, uh, if you are going to plan to romance any Koreans, probably take care, make sure you bring the antibiotics, unless you don't care that they die, and, and in that case, you're kind of a jerk. I don't know what else to say there. Um, but yeah, that kind of takes us through the biology of the Koreans. After the mid-break, we will be talking about the culture, the government, the military, the law system that the Koreans have, uh, because as I did mention before, we've already covered the Geth War. We're not really going to go over that too much more. 
Uh, we will reference it, but we've already covered it. So if you haven't listened to it yet, please do go back and check those episodes. I believe that would have been about 13 episodes ago. So 13 weeks. I believe that's episode number five. So anyway, we're going to go into the mid-break now where we're going to read some new reviews uh, from all of our fantastic fans who have left us some really nice things to say. uh, And that will be done in post-production by Tom. Message coming in. Patching it through. I am sovereign and this station is mine. I like the sound of that. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Have you ever wondered how deep the Elder Scrolls lore rabbit hole goes? Have you got a grasp of the basics and want to find out more about the universe? Written in Uncertainty is here to help you. We'll be mixing in philosophy, theology, and whatever other theory is useful with Elder Scrolls texts to untangle some of the biggest questions in the series, like what are dragon breaks, how does Chim work, where did the Dwemer go, and more. Check us out at writteninuncertainty.com or find Written in Uncertainty on any podcatcher. Thanks for listening, and catch you later in the grey maybe of Tamriel. So, uh, so I get the fun part in the middle of the show. I mean, I guess the lore part's the fun part too, but, um, I get to thank our patrons and I get to read out some of the reviews and I hope, I hope my voice isn't so terrible. I still can't breathe through my nose correctly. So I, I sound funny in my own head. So I hope I sound okay to you guys. Um, so uh, real quick, it's the beginning of a new month, which means that I get to thank all of our new patrons who have signed up over July. And that includes Zane T uh n7 stormtrooper 22 sergi p um looking through the list chelsea b stagger and stumble oscar c uh n7 muse offshore meteor juan c and uh i think that's it if i missed anybody please let me know um if you signed up during august or june then uh august i will thank you uh beginning of next month and june i should have already thanked you and if i missed you uh please let me know and a special thanks to all of the patrons but especially those of you who sign up at the tier five or higher level because you get thanked every single week all the time and that includes sovereign who is our tier five patron so thank you again sovereign um and everybody who signs up at a tier four gets to join us at uh, the end of every month and talk about mass effect so um i'm looking forward again to meeting with you guys at the end of this month and of course just thanks to everybody all 33 of you guys you guys are amazing if you have enjoyed the show if we've helped pass the time at work or helped you with your commute or just made the world a better place for you for you know an hour at a time then please consider going to patreon.com slash mass effect lorecast and chipping in a few bucks and seeing what you can get for it we we'd love to give you ad free episodes or chat with you at the end of the month or, or whatever so 
Go check that out. And thanks again to all of our patrons. Now, we also have some new reviews to go over because we got to thank the people who took the time to drop some reviews for us. So, man, we've got, um, let's see, we have, we have at least four, I believe. I hope none of these are repeats. It's it's a little bit hard to remember specifically which ones we go over sometimes. But um, let's see. We have Lord Gibby. This is from the United States. Very informative and funny five stars. Robots and N7 Legend bring so much information about the huge universe of the Mass Effect games uh, that the Mass Effect games take place in. If you wish to learn about any race within the Mass Effect games, look no further. Keep up the great work. Yeah. And like... um. Uh, N7 is going to say at the end of this episode, we're going to be diving into some other stuff pretty soon, including uh, potentially the technology of Mass Effect and the companions. And uh, there's so much we can go into this world and this universe is so big with content. So don't worry, there will be lots of other episodes coming up. So so (laughs) get ready for that. Then we have um, Occam from Canada who writes long overdue five stars. This is the show I've been waiting for for a long time, full of information and funny anecdotes. Great show guys. Well, thank you, Occam. Uh, and also thank you, Lord Gibby. If I didn't say that previously, I appreciate the, uh, the time it takes you guys to leave reviews and, and the thoughtfulness in these. Also, we have one from, uh, Blake widow in, in Canada who writes my favorite podcast on the Citadel. Never, I never thought of myself as a podcast person, but now apparently I am, and I am so grateful. This is the greatest thing I didn't know I needed until I finished the Legendary Edition and wanted more. Hearing our hosts talk shop about the history, facts, mythology, and theories of everything Mass Effect has truly been a blast. I'm sorry, it's truly been a blessing. I'm putting words in your mouth. Sorry about that. Um, I'm always looking forward to the next episode. Onwards and upwards. Well, thank you very much for that. We also have one from Matt WW in the United States who writes fantastic, like all other robots radio productions. Oh, well, thank you for that. Fantastic podcast, robots background in marketing and religious studies shine as he pokes and prods aspects of game lore and philosophy. The team does a good amount of prep and research before each show, all of their shows, not, not this one, <laughs> not, uh, not just this one and raises questions on the periphery of the physical boundaries of the gameplay. Well, thanks for that. That's awesome, Matt. Also, you know what? We did the, um, the chat show last week. So I think I did miss some of these and, uh, yep. Okay. So we've got one here. Uh, it says, uh, Thanatos five, seven, two, uh, must support five stars. I am toasty. And this is my favorite podcast on the Citadel. I'm pretty sure we didn't do that one yet. Um, big boss Raz in the United States writes, Best podcast on the Citadel, five stars. After finishing Legendary Edition recently, I realized I'm still itching for more Mass Effect. This show has been the perfect fix. I love the analysis and real-world parallels that are that are discussed. The hosts are super entertaining and quite comical. Thanks for your insight and for producing such a fun and interesting show. Well, thanks, Big Ross. Or, I'm sorry, Big Boss, Raz. Man, I'm messing up. Guys, I need to get over this cold. <laughs> it is killing me. Then we have one more. I believe this is the last one that I haven't done yet, (laughs) I hope. And this is from Rich Fitz 8 in the United States, who says, must listen slash watch for Mass Effect fans. This is another very informative and well 
produced Lorecast, diving into the lore of the Mass Effect universe. Highly recommend this to anyone looking to learn more about the lore of the Mass Effect universe. So thank you, Rich Fitz. All right. I think that's everything. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I apologize for not being able to be here live again for this one. Um, hopefully I will be in a much better condition this next week. And I look forward to seeing you guys live. All right. Let's go back to Sam for the rest of the episode. Thanks for hanging in there, everyone. See you guys next time. Spit it out, or are you trying to build suspense? You're so dense, sir. Obviously, I do not know as much about human relationships as I thought. All right, uh, so we didn't get to talk too much about the Corian pilgrimage the last time we were speaking about the pilgrimage, or uh, the Corians rather, which was episode number five. And the irony is that the need for it is so intrinsically linked to the Geth War, which leads to them being nomadic in the first place. So let's start with what it is. What is the pilgrimage? The pilgrimage is a rite of passage journey every single Corian goes on when they venture out from the ship they were born on to some other place, a distant planet, the Citadel, a colony, another space station, you name it, just somewhere else. But the goal is to find something, whether tangible, like a valuable piece of salvage or technology, or intangible, like knowledge, that can benefit the fleet as a whole. So I'll repeat that. The goal is to find something that can benefit the fleet as a whole. This is because the fleet's top priority is survival and survival only. So the necessity of sending people out to bring back valuable goods and intel arose out of both scarcity and collectivist mindsets. Naming conventions also came from the pilgrimage. You may see, quote, Nar and Vas in the series, namely with Tally. That's because Quarians have four-part names. They're given name and their clan name, separated by an apostrophe, Nar or Vas, and the name of their ship. Nar is before a quarian has gone on their pilgrimage. It means where they were born. So Vas then means their adopted ship. It's where they live after they return from their pilgrimage. And by the way, I thought, you know, really supremely interesting byproduct of spending centuries in confined spaces in, in space, space travel, is it seems the Corians are enamored with storytelling. And the game does offer an explanation. Perhaps that is a coping mechanism. If you're trapped on board a ship for hundreds of years, and that is the new home, that's your home world, would you not want to escape a little bit? Would you not have escapism? And that might also be one of the by, uh, like the uh, side reasons for the pilgrimage because if you're trapped on the ship you kind of need to get out those crazy years if Corians are at all like human beings and most human beings have uh, at least some type of rebellious adventurous phase right so a pilgrimage would make sense to try to get those uh, adventurous years out now as for harboring a collectivist culture it's no surprise because on the migrant fleet, they need to be self-sustaining, as I already mentioned. Yet they don't have the resources that a homeworld can offer. So this leads to the governing body 
implementing a policy of zero-sum populations. In other words, if the population begins to sp- begins to shrink, they incent- they incentivize more births. Better get cracking. <laughs> get us more Koreans. But most couples are required to have only one child. So the Koreans have a one-child policy, uh, extraneous circumstances notwithstanding. So that brings me to a few different uh, kind of parallels that I can think of in the real world, which of course the most prevalent is when China had the one-child policy. It was meant for population control, uh, but it also it effectively illustrates how, how much control their government has, right? So their government implements a zero-sum population policy that kind of leads you to believe that the government has total control, right? The government is literally telling you what to do in your bedroom. You can't have more than one kid. Well, this leads us to our next topic. What's the government, the Korean government like? We get a few hints from Mass Effect 2. We know from Tally's loyalty mission in Mass Effect 2 that disciplinary hearings aboard the fleet are presided over by an admiralty board, similar to a military tribunal. And this makes sense This makes sense because the fleet is still technically under martial law ever since the Geth War. They're still under martial law. So if you're still under martial law, that means that effectively the military has total control. And whoever is in charge of the military, you know, it's their way or the highway. Um, But there is a co-equal, quote-unquote co-equal, branch of government called the Conclave. It's much more similar to that of a government of any homeworld. And what I mean by that is that it presides over day-to-day functions of the fleet. So it's democratically elected, and it handles disputes if ships and their captains cannot resolve them themselves. So there is effectively a a system of federalism here, but it's not exactly adhered to in the same way. So if, if you're familiar with American government systems then I'm going to put this in terms of American government. The conclave establishes civil law, like Congress does. And ship captains are like the executive branch. They enforce the law. And the admiralty board, the admiralty board is somewhat similar to, uh, I guess you could say, a Supreme Court, but if the Supreme Court were also the Joint Chiefs of Staff, so the heads of the military. So what you have now is parameters and regulations that have been enacted by a civilian leadership from multiple different ships, but the people who enforce those are the ship captains, and it's ultimately up to them what kind of punishment you get. When you're accused of a crime, if you're a quarian, and taken into custody, you're brought before the ship captain. So the ship's own city council, this is a lower level than the conclave, the ship has its own, basically, a city council. They can make recommendations, but ultimately the captain is the judge, jury, and executioner. And that's not really just a turn of phrase. You know, the, the Koreans, they do practice capital punishment for extreme crimes against the fleet, like mutiny and hijacking. <laughs> And, and I say extreme because this is in the Korean mindset, right? They're, they are extreme because they endanger other Koreans' lives. That's the whole point. You're endangering other Koreans. 
That's why it's extreme. But most crimes, of severity anyway, warrant exile. So they leave repeat offenders at the next port. And the migrant fleet, of course, needs to go from port to port to restock. So next port, you're out of here, buddy. <laughs> and that's just kind of the way that it is. Now, that, that might seem a little cold, right? But it is the lowest cost, most humane way to deal with civil offenders. That's just the way that it, that it is. Uh, they can't waste too many resources doling out punishment when those resources could be used towards saving people. And that's just how scarce things are for the Koreans. Now, treason is the worst possible crime that a Korean can commit. And it's also the crime that Tally is accused of in Mass Effect 2, and it's why Shepard has to defend her at the trial in front of the Admiralty Board. Treason is the only crime that the Admiralty Board will preside over. Why? Well, because it harms the entire fleet. Harms the entire fleet. So, if, again, if you're putting yourself in the mind of the Koreans, why is treason the worst possible crime? Well, it harms the entire migrant fleet. Harms everyone. Literally the continuity of Korean, the, the whole Korean race. So, it's not just treason against one nation. It's treason against your entire species. And this is kind of a point that we need to drill in, because otherwise, that loyalty mission with Tally, it doesn't make sense. It does like, it makes sense in terms of why, you know, the Geth and blah, 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 it's a hot button issue. But now think of it in terms of she has not committed treason against a single ship, a, sing, a single nation. She has committed treason against her entire species. At least that's the way that the Admiralty Board sees it. Interestingly enough, even the children of those exiled are welcomed back on the migrant fleet. So, it's not too draconian. You might think it's pretty draconian when you hear about treason and the worst possible crimes and how they do practice capital punishment, but that's not the way that it is. Most of the crimes, like I said, warrant exile. And those children of those who are exiled are welcome back. So, is it really that harsh? I don't know. They could probably be a little bit more harsh with, you know, uh, with, with, with thieves, with things like that, especially considering the scarcity of their own situation and how many resources do they really have to spare to the, uh, to the, to the children of thieves or to the children of murderers, you know. Um, but that, that, that's not the way that it is. And speaking of draconian... Let's talk about their military, right? Unsurprisingly, much of the Quarian military is developed to fight synthetics. That's, well, I mean, you know, why wouldn't it be, right? They almost got wiped off the face of the earth by the Geth. Like, 99%, I believe, of all Quarians died in the Geth War. I'm pretty sure it was up to that percentage, I'll have to double check my own notes, but it was 90-some percent of all Koreans died. Billions. And there are a few million left. So, naturally, your entire military is going to be developed to uh, fight that one enemy, right? But they've also likely had to fight off pirates and mercenaries too, right? Because they're they're carrying their entire race, 
in a massive flotilla, meaning that all of their belongings, literally all of them, are with them. So normally a massive civilian ship would make for a good target if you're a pirate or a merc, if you're looking to raid and pillage. But this is why so many civilian ships in the Korean fleet chose to arm themselves with ship-to-ship weapons. So how many ships are there exactly? Let's put this in perspective for a second, right? How many ships are there exactly? Well, we know that there's a few hundred dedicated Korean warships. A few hundred. But there are tens of thousands of Korean civilian ships. Tens of thousands of ships. Not all of them are of Korean design, of course. Remember that they are salvagers. So they vary in size and capacity. But there's still tens of thousands of them. And only a few hundred dedicated Korean warships. So it created, it created the, the, the uh, necessity for the civilians to arm themselves. Big deterrent. This is also why the Koreans have slight trust issues with other ships approaching the migrant fleet. The Navy, the Korean Navy, will shoot to kill if approaching vessels do not respond or cannot be verified, or in any way if their intent cannot be authenticated. They don't think, they don't ask questions later, they just shoot. That's that, because, you know, you can't take any risks. So... How do then the Koreans on pilgrimages get around this security measure? You know, when they return, how do they get around it? Well, they have passphrases. And tallies is one of my favorite quotes of the entire series. The quote is, Along tides of light and through shoals of dust, I will return to where I began. I'll say that again just for, for impact. Along tides of light and through shoals of dust... I will return to where I began. And for me, there's no other quote in all of gaming that evokes such an ethereal longing, a wanderlust for something I can't even put my finger on. Um, If this sounds familiar to you, it might be because I tweeted it before, but I am going to say it again because I I still feel this strongly about it. Um, It's a feeling of missing something. Some place I haven't even been to yet. Like living in both the future and the past within that future. It's like a feeling of sadness and hope of being lost. But belonging somewhere at the same time. Like a kind of saudade, as some Brazilian friends might say. It's a feeling of missing something you never had. Something you never knew. Some place, some person, some face, some sound that you've never even experienced. Uh, And in English, there's no word for it. But in that way, this writing was brilliant, if not downright genius, in my opinion, in that it encapsulates the Quarian pilgrimage perfectly. It's an absolutely melancholic and gorgeous use of the English language, in my opinion. I hope it translates just as well into other tongues, too. Uh, Pun fully intended here, truly stellar. Truly, truly stellar writing from Bioware. I love it. Uh, Whoever wrote that should get a a promotion or a raise or something. They should get a lot of money. (laughs) Because it really is uh, poetic. And I think 
having a poetic phrase like that is very fitting for the Quarians because they are a race that has been uh, characterized as being overly emotional. But in reality, what, what do they care about the most? They care about loyalty. They care about cooperation, teamwork, their collectivist culture. And yet they still have these individualistic uh, ideals like, like, like poetry, like art. So, uh, you know, that's that. Uh, and, and it's interesting that they would fuse such uh, artistic inclinations with uh, serious rites of passage like the pilgrimage. So, and uh, by the way, if you're wondering for the civilian ships, do they have, they have ship to ship combat, right? But do they have on board defenses if they're, if anyone tries to board them? Well, they do. Uh, every civilian ship has quarian marines on board and they fulfill roles very similar to military police in our own world. So they are military trained um, but they function as civilian police and military police, and they are uh, authorized to arrest people and, and take them away, of course. So that kind of covers it for the Quarians. Um, and uh, hold on, I'll say that again so that Tom has time to clip that. That kind of covers it for the Quarians. We've covered their their uh, religion, of course, in the Geth War episode. We've covered their origins of their technology. We've covered their military, their government, their law system. We've covered their biology and some of their culture and even their naming conventions. So I think that we've probably done a good number with the Quarians now. Uh, I don't anticipate having a third episode on the Quarians, but we will one day be covering Tally because it is my dream to... Uh, cover each of the Mass Effect squad mates and major characters with their own episode. But as for next week, next week, we spoke about this race briefly before. Tom and I agree, though, uh, we had another conversation about this, that this race also deserves their own episode. And of course, I am talking about the Krogan. So we are going to be talking about the Krogan, not just the Krogan Rebellions, not just the Rachni Wars. We've already covered those. We are going to be talking about the Krogan, just the Krogan, and only the Krogan. <laughs> and after that, we will be nearly done with all of the races in the Mass Effect original trilogy. We will have the Vorcha and the Yog, which I plan on combining into one episode. There's not a lot of information uh, on either one of them alone. And after that, uh, that pretty much just leaves some very, very minor races in the ori original trilogy, but we will be covering some of the unique races like the Angara and the Ket, who were introduced in Mass Effect Andromeda. And we'll probably give each of those their own episode as well. So in total, we're really only looking about three more episodes of race episodes. And then I think we will have a very good basis for launching off on some of the series more complex topics because then we will have this foundation that we've built uh, where we're all coming at this from the same uh, playing field uh, but anyway those are kind of my thoughts on where the series is right now and where it's going i'm not gonna lie i'm, I'm a little bit stumped for the next sub-series of episodes i don't want to dive right in not yet i don't want to dive right in to the uh, squad mates to the individual characters um, 
just because there's so many of them. And I think the race series was, you know, at, at its uh, total length, it's going to be about 16, 17 weeks long. That's pretty long. So I'd like to shake things up a bit. Maybe we'll cover some some technology of Mass Effect. We'll cover the actual science of Mass Effect and debate whether or not it's it holds up, whether or not it's legit. I think it would be sweet to uh, bring a scientist on here. That would be pretty cool. Uh, bring someone who's actually got some training in astrophysics and ask them what they thought about Mass Effect FTL speeds or FTL capabilities. So I don't know, but I'd love to hear what you guys think. If you are dying to hear about a certain genre or category of things within Mass Effect that we could do a series of episodes on, let me know. You, of course, can message me in the Discord. And, of course, if you want to get a hold of me, uh, my Twitter is at N7TheLegend. My Twitch, of course, is at N7TheLegend as well. And I'm always open to chatting about Mass Effect with people. Like I said, I... uh, Like I said last week, I have started a new job, so my hours are going to be a little bit restrained in the mornings from Saturday through Wednesday, but Thursday and Friday, I am going to be doing my best to try to stream more Mass Effect and uh, playing more games with the community for the Xbox Game Pass show. We have a Game Pass gang that's kind of attached to that, so I'm going to be playing more games and interacting with people that way. Uh, If you're interested, of course, join the Discord. It will be in the show notes. And uh, that's pretty much all I have. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Mass Effect Lorecast. We'd love to hear your opinion and thoughts on the lore of Mass Effect. Reach out to us on Twitter at Mass Effect Cast or check out the Robots Radio Discord. Also, you can send us an email at MassEffectLorecast at gmail.com. In a world where solid-state electronics and vacuum tubes are still meta, people never stop loving atomic-powered everything. A chosen 500 stepped inside a subterranean vault to be spared the nuclear horror of the inevitable Great War. 25 years later, they emerge after the fallout settles to retake Appalachia. Among them, two former rivals whose blood feud will tear West Virginia apart in their epic struggle for survival. Chad, a vault bro who has a strength of 15, an intelligence of two, and is a complete wasteland dickhead. Simon, a complicated anti-hero who chooses light and hope, but accidentally becomes a cannibal and wakes up naked and afraid with a Scorch Beast Queen after a date goes terribly wrong. What? I mean, it's a wild wasteland, right? This dark humor radio drama will have you driving off the road and crawling out from under the fallout. Two men. One wasteland. So many nukes. Chad, a Fallout 76 podcast. Rated R. Now streaming on your holotape player podcasty thing. Do you like adventure? Yeah. Do you like laughing? Uh, yeah. Would you like to listen to a group of people you don't know play D&D and reference retro pop culture you vaguely remember? Um... Excellent. 
you're going to love Committee Quest. We play D&D in the world of Amarin. We use adventure modules and supplements made by people in the community. We also have a sweet synthwave backing track. Come and join us on our adventure. Volume 1 has been completed. Volume 2 coming the end of January. You can find us on iTunes, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts from.